Welcome to our podcast, Psychiatric Services, From Pages to Practice. In this podcast, we highlight new research or columns published this month in the journal Psychiatric Services. I'm Lisa Dixon, editor of Psychiatric Services, and I'm here with podcast editor and my co-host, Josh Berezin. Hi, Josh. Hi, Lisa. Hey, guess what? What? We're going to do something different today. Okay, everybody, hold on tight. Things are, things are changing drastically <laughs> here at the podcast. Instead of talking about three articles, we're going to talk about two. You can send in all of your, all of your concerns uh, in, our, in our feedback section if right, this is really right, blowing right, your mind. Right. <laughs> well, I, somehow I don't think anybody's going to care. Anyway, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about one article that presents a new model of inpatient care rolled out in East England. Very exciting. Remember the number 333. Okay. It's coming back. Yeah, not 222. Or 444. But 333. And the second article is going to be, I find this really interesting, improving practices or improving clinician practices when sharing notes with their patients. So two articles, but two really good ones. Yeah. So first up, we have Manan Carre and colleagues on embedding recovery to transform inpatient mental health care, the 333 model. So I hope we're saying that right. It's not 333. Yeah. I think it's 333. Okay. 333. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I say. So this is a description of basically what sounds like an almost entire revamping of inpatient services in the east of England. And we're specifically talking about one part of England, the Cambridgeshire and Peterborough NHS Foundation Trust, or CPFT, which serves a population of about 550,000 adults. And I think the context for this is going to be roughly familiar to our listeners in the United States. So over the past 40 years, there's been a trend in the UK towards closing large mental health institutions in favor of emphasizing community resources. Same thing that's been, same sort of trend that's been happening here in, in the States. More recently, the east of England, this particular region, has also had a population influx, there's a housing shortage, and there's also economic pressures from the Great Recession and the like. So all of this has led to bed shortages within the region and also increased reliance on placing people outside of their catchment area and increasing length of stays. So just to give a sense, across the entire UK, the average length of stay is 35.9 days, which I think is probably... It's quite a bit longer than here in the States right now. Yes, the heads of our inpatient units who are listening are probably there. <laughs> 35.9? That's, no. a, that's a very long length yeah. of stay for what we're used to in the States. So they undertook a really, like I said, a massive overhaul of their inpatient services in this region to address some of these issues. And the first part was already pretty much in existence. So they had this crisis resolution and home treatment team, which from what they describe, attempts to treat people in their home and also serves kind of like a triage function. So Almost like, like a crisis intervention team sort of thing. Yeah, it seems like mm-hmm. kind of like maybe even a souped up crisis intervention mm-hmm. team mm-hmm. where they're mm-hmm. able to provide more services mm-hmm. um, in people's homes. Mm-hmm. But again, like our crisis, or crisis teams here in the mm-hmm. States, they're deciding who needs to go and for more inpatient. And then the rest of it is, I think, really the innovative part. And this is the 333 model. And again, the, the, among other things, they did a really nice job naming it. It's a good mnemonic because each three is going to represent a different level of inpatient treatment. So, and timelines also. You know, it, we're laughing about that, but as the article unfolds, you realize how important it is that the community 
understand the model and, and contribute to and play a role in the model. So this notion that 333 is readily understandable and, and memorable is actually not, not a trivial thing. No, and it's, you know, it, it kind of rolls off the tongue and mm-hmm. you're able to kind of capture a lot of information in a short way of saying it. And I think, it, I think you're right. I think it's not trivial. Yeah. So what is it? The first three is a three-day assessment unit, which, as you would expect, is focusing on assessing and triaging patients. The second three is a three-week treatment unit, which focuses on treatment and treatment response. I think that's probably would be somewhat familiar to inpatient units in the States. Mm-hmm. And then the third three is a three-month recovery unit, and that continues treatment and works on rehabilitation. So I think that there's, that's kind of the basics, but really, and it's even in the title of the paper, one of the most interesting thing parts about this model is that it's really recovery focused. So, so you know, before, I, I think it might be worth making clear mm-hmm. that this notion of the assessment unit, the treatment unit, and uh, the recovery unit is kind of a sequence. Yes. And people, for the most part, people would start in the assessment unit and if need be, move to the treatment unit and then if need be, to the recovery unit. But in sequence, as needed. Yeah, so they're hoping, one of their goals is actually Mm -hmm. to not admit anybody directly to the three-month recovery unit Mm -hmm. and to have most people go through the assessment unit. And I think some people go through the treatment unit, but you're right. It is thought to be kind of a sequential Mm -hmm. stepwise, um, stepwise model. But again, even within that, they really have embedded recovery into the model. So just as an example, the three-day assessment unit's recovery goal is finding and maintaining hope among individuals who feel that all is lost. So this is kind of revolutionary, actually, I think. I mean, if you think about our emergency departments, which are sometimes treating people on a three-day time scale, I don't think that ERs have, you know, finding and maintaining hope for people who feel that all is lost as sort of a guiding principle. No, no, I, I would say very that they would probably think that would be out of scope. Exactly, and they also are really like drilling down on these timelines. So the assessment unit is operating on an hour by hour timeline. The three the week treatment unit is focused on days mm-hmm. and the recovery unit is kind of working on a, um, a unit of weeks. But in that three day assessment unit, they're like every hour has a milestone associated with it. And that's like uh, translate to a really granular and comprehensive way of assessing people. So one example is that if somebody's doing a jigsaw puzzle in the assessment unit, it's an opportunity to assess for concentration. Or if somebody's in a group and they can look to see how people are socializing. Um, so they're really operating on um, a very granular time scale in terms of the, the work that they're doing on each of these units. So the, the, the paper has a really wonderful table mm-hmm. or box actually, <laughs> which delineates for each of these components of the system, sort of the key challenge, the key recovery focus, the key functions, and kind of what is new. It's, very, it's really worth taking a look at. Yeah. So the paper is really doing two things. It's kind of describing the 
implementation and the model and the recovery goals. And they're also um, using data from April of 2015 to March of 2017 to see if the model was meeting both NHS benchmarks and also their internal targets for bed reduction, patient flow, length of stay, and bed occupancy. So why don't we start with just those and seeing what the paper found in terms of, or the study found in terms of those outcomes. I think the, the take home is that they really came close to or met almost all of their targets. So just taking a couple examples. After the implementation, they were able to reduce their beds in the region by 44%, and that's compared to a 17% reduction across the UK. So they're also able to meet their patient flow goals, which is really important. It seems like from reading the article that if there's not flow through the system, the whole model kind of would probably fall apart in some way. So what they wanted are for people in the assessment unit, that's the three-day assessment unit, they wanted 70% or more of those people to return back to the community. And as you said, they actually exceeded that goal with 74% of patients from the assessment unit going back into the community. On the other side, going from the assessment unit to the three-week treatment unit, they wanted to have less than 30% of people doing that. And they were also able to exceed that goal with 25% of people going from the assessment unit to the treatment unit. So similarly, for people who are in the treatment unit, that three-week treatment unit, they wanted less than 20% of them to be going to the three-month recovery unit. And again, they were able to exceed that goal. So just 16% of people from the treatment unit went on to the longer length of stay recovery unit. So they're also either at or around their goals for length of stay. And again, you can think of the length of stay as being explained in the title of the model. So mm -hmm. the goal median length of stay for the assessment unit is three days. Um, they were actually at about five days for that, but they were able to meet the three week and three month goals for their targets for the other two units. And then just to give a sense across the whole system, the median length of stay was around six days compared to around 36 days nationally. Mm -hmm. So they also had a bed occupancy target of 85%, and they were, again, able to exceed that at 81% bed occupancy. And just to get a sense of that, there were no nights over the study period where there was not a bed available in the system. The thing about bed occupancy is that there's at least two reasons to limit it. One has to do with the, the desire to always have a bed should somebody in the community need it, and they were able to meet that, um, to have that situation. Also, there's an argument to limit bed occupancy really for safety. Mm -hmm. In other words, not to have hospitals really at their capacity, which can cause dangerous types of situations. And their so. goal was based on guidelines. From right. Yeah. From the, from the Royal College. Yes. Yeah. So I think that the results are very impressive on their own. But as we mentioned before, one of the other really interesting parts of the paper is that it's also about both implementation and how they made this into a recovery model. Like you could see how decreasing length of stay, decreasing beds could be very antithetical to recovery goals. And so it was really important for the designers of the model to make sure that this was a recovery-oriented intervention and as you were mentioning, that um, people bought into it in a way. And so a lot of the rest of the article is really about how they were able to do that. Yeah, yeah. 
And so one of the things that they're really trying to do is change change minds around the, the providers about what happens on inpatient units. And so they're talking about silos. Um, they kind of have a couple sayings, some of which I don't know um, if they translate so well from from the UK to uh, to America, like top to tap. I am here to help you uh, help yourself. Um, but I think the idea is to embed recovery kind of within the the ethos of the the entire unit. Yeah, and it really it's about creating a a vision that everybody buys into, and that takes you know really careful inclusion of stakeholders. I think in the conversation about you know what this is going to be and 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 how they're going to implement it. Yes, yeah, so they did five stakeholder events, which sounded very comprehensive. They really put in a lot of thought about how staff and resources were going to be reallocated with all of those bed closures. It seems like it was very deliberative. And again, at every step in the design and execution, recovery was really kind of front and center. And one thing that I think we both stood out for us, um, along with having the, the recovery goal, the assessment unit, according to the paper, the people who work there think of themselves as hope vendors. Yeah. Which is just like emergency rooms, you know, in the United States. Hope well, vendors, right? I'm I mean, not sure which emergency rooms you've been <laughs> you've been in, but I would like to I would like to see them. I think when you read particularly this the sort of the second half of the article, it sort of makes the case that the system with all its constraints, at least in this geographic area, could build a recovery oriented inpatient system system for the population, you know, while maintaining budgets and being practical. There the the paper does list a couple of limitations in terms of, well, you know, how generalizable is this? You know, what what more do they have to do? I think, again, it's worth reading the paper. You know, it's, it's there, I think that there are, it might be difficult to achieve this exact kind of uh, setup in the fragmented system that is really characteristic of the United States. But again, I think it's quite, it's really inspirational and, and should be aspirational for us in the United States. So next up and last up today, we have Dobsha and colleagues on the impacts of a web-based course on mental health clinicians, attitudes and communication behaviors related to the use of open notes. So I had not realized that there's an organized movement going on right now towards sharing progress notes between clinicians and patients. And that's called, as they allude to in their title, the uh, open notes. Yeah, and, and really, the, I mean, we, we, it's an overall uh, push toward transparency mm-hmm. in the medical record and um, uh, so that it's not secret. Yeah, and there are people who are specifically advocating for this. And the paper itself points towards uh, opennotes.org, where... I myself learned that the idea for sharing notes goes back to the early 1970s, kind of gained some steam in the 1990s and 2000s with HIPAA and the increasing use of EMRs, and then really started taking off about 10 years ago with some major health systems implementing uh, open notes. And one of those major health systems was the VA, which in 2013 allowed patients who used their online portal to view clinical notes. 
So this idea, Open Notes, has some research to back it up, um, helping patients feel more in control, improving their understanding of their health issues, uh, remembering what their plan of care is, and also increasing trust. But at the same time, there are concerns for both the patient and the provider about sharing notes between providers and patients. And I can definitely relate to this, having written notes that I don't think would be I, I would have to change my practice in writing my clinical notes if I were going to be sharing them with patients. And maybe that's something that should be an eye opener for me mm-hmm, about what, mm-hmm. I'm, what I'm including. But so this team has actually done a lot of the prior research in this area. And they had found that uh, providers have been concerned about patients reading notes and becoming worried about their mental health. Some thought it would strengthen relationships with patients. Others thought that it might be more harmful. Um, I really like this one kind of set of statistics that they provided where that really point to these mixed feelings where 85% of providers agreed with the statement, making medical record notes available online is a good idea. So great, sounds like we should move (laughs) forward. But then almost half of them also said that they would be somewhat or very pleased if the practice were discontinued. (laughs) It's like just as long as it happens to the other guy. That's right. Right, right, right. That, yes, yes, that's going to happen in the office next door. Um, But I think that that's great for them. And and I think just just to take a moment for our listeners who are clinicians who write notes or or you know n- not even clinicians or care providers who write notes and charts think about it think about it right now how you would feel if your notes were open without even you know without any kind of evaluation or assessment to any of your clients it's important to think about yeah i think most people's a lot of people's hearts might skip uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, quick mm-hmm. skip one beat mm-hmm. um, but patients are also concerned about this as well that you know there's a desire to discuss the notes with their providers but a reluctance to actually bring it up during an encounter there's kind of mixed feelings on on both sides but they've done some work this 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 research group um, on what advice both clinicians and patients would have for clinicians to use open notes more effectively and those studies Um, are part of the basis for this 30-minute training module that focuses on attitudes towards open notes and also communication about it with patients. So this study is to see if attitudes and communication changed among clinicians after they received this 30-minute training that they had designed. Exactly. So it's um, just to get into the study design a little bit, People were not randomly assigned to receive the training or not. Instead, what they did is they sent out an initial email to all of the 251 VA mental health clinicians working in the Portland VA system. So this is social workers, psychologists, nurses, psychiatrists. 131 people respond. And of those people that responded, they were randomly assigned to either getting the survey training and a post-intervention survey right then and the other group was assigned to get the surveys and intervention a little bit later. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can just take a second to explain why that's that's important. Yeah, well, so it just it kind of gives a control such that the to test whether just the passage of time um, or or increase or access to open notes is influencing the outcome. So you have a group that got the train got the training and right away and did the pre-post right away and then you had a group that waited and essentially served as a control for the early for the first phase and then uh, so that we could see if the um it's really it's really to to try to enhance 
the internal validity. So you can say with more confidence that the any difference between the pre and post survey was because of the intervention and not because of some other thing right. that was going right. on. Right. Yeah. Exactly. You you said that very well, Josh. I think you said it better than I did. Well, you know, after uh, 20, 23, 24 episodes, I'm catching on a little bit. So here are the results. Um, it's kind of like a weightless control. There we go. See, okay. now yeah, you said yeah, it better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, there's 113 people who took both the pre-survey and the post-survey after they completed the course. And this is what they found was significant. They found that there were increases in perceptions of ability to communicate with and educate patients about open notes. Um, that there's a decrease among providers in worrying about the negative consequences of you using open notes, and that they more frequently educated their patients about open notes access and uh, advised them to read and access them and ask them about their questions or concerns. It didn't change providers concerns about potential negative consequences for the treatment relationship. So it didn't do everything that they had hoped for, but it did seem to really change change behaviors. Yeah. Or at least self-reported behaviors. And That's attitudes, uh, right? another important caveat. <laughs> so you really liked this paper. Um, what, what was it about it that you felt was both important in terms of the, I think, the content, but also mm-hmm. the kind of idea behind yeah. it? Well, I, what I really love is the idea that they tested a training in an empirical manner. I think we as educators, and even in clinical practice, we, we too easily or too readily say, oh, we can't, we don't know whether you know, our training approaches work, and we just, this is just, just supervision, or you know, we, we, it's, we know it works because it's the way we've always done it. Mm-hmm. Um, but in fact, I think this paper demonstrates that one can take an empirical approach to a training activity. It's not perfect high science, but it, to me it gives confidence uh, the findings give confidence that this training program is helpful in certain ways, and it also gives us clues as to what the training activity might need to do better. Hmm. And and so it it's and it's really making ourselves accountable for the training and uh, educational um, activities that we uh, employ. And, and I you know as someone who's an educator, as someone who's very involved in providing technical assistance, I, th- I think this just sets a great example for the field. And I think that there's, uh, just along those lines, I think mm-hmm. that a lot of people who are listening get inundated with varying training requirements. Mm-hmm. And so I think one thing that you're pointing out is that those trainings should be really they should add a lot of value mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. clinicians' knowledge base, or um, we should really know that they work. And I have a feeling that not all the trainings that people are required to do <laughs> have gone through this kind of level of, right, of right. rigor. So it kind of sets a, a little bit of more of a benchmark for what we should be thinking through exactly. before we ask yeah. people to take some yeah. time to... To do that. You know, and of course, it would be great if we could see if this really translates to different actions on the part of clinicians and you know for me personally I think that the notion of open notes is where we should be going I think I believe in transparency I believe that ultimately you know although there are exceptions to every rule obviously that we this should be a goal 38 million people right now have uh, access to their notes so it's also coming so that's it for the day we invite you to visit our website 
ps.psychiatryonline.org to read the articles we discussed in this episode, as well as other great research. We remind you to check out the Editor's Choice topic collections available now. You can sign up at oppi.org backslash E-T-O-C-S, um, A-P-P-I.org backslash E-T-O-C-S. The next collection we're going to be releasing is going to be on perinatal psychiatry. Hmm. Kind of a little different. We've done uh, recovery, we've done peer support, and, and then actually after perinatal, we're going to be doing homelessness. We welcome your feedback on this podcast. Please email us at psjournal@psych.org. I'm Lisa Dixon. I'm Josh Berzin. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>